We'd like to make special mention this episode of the podcast Good is in the Details. Good is in the Details is hosted by Gwendolyn Dolsky, PhD, and Rudy Sallow. Each episode of Good is in the Details features a discussion with an expert where we, the listeners, learn what we didn't know we didn't know. Join Gwendolyn and Rudy in gaining a bit of wisdom, health tips, lessons on self-improvement, and some laughter in between. I've now listened to several episodes of Good is in the Details, and I can attest that Gwendolyn and Rudy are a pleasure to listen to. They tend to select intriguing topics for discussion and bring a Socratic philosophy to the various subjects they address, which I find both appealing and educational. I would strongly recommend that you check out Good is in the Details at the first opportunity. It's available wherever you stream podcasts. Welcome back to The Looking Glass. This is Matthew Craig Kelly. Mark Smerling's 2020 series for Hulu, A Wilderness of Error, is fascinating and beautifully produced. It is also, so far as I'm aware, unique in that it takes a book of the same title, Errol Morris's 2012 book, A Wilderness of Error, as its primary point of reference, but treats that book with skepticism rather than simply translating its thesis into the language of film. Smerling essentially sets out to either verify or disconfirm Morris's hunch that Jeffrey MacDonald is an innocent man. Let me say a word about Morris's thesis in A Wilderness of Error, the book. Morris contends that Jeffrey MacDonald has, since the early 1980s, been contained within two prisons. The first is the one we all know, a physical prison. The second is the one Morris wants to direct our attention to, a narrative prison. MacDonald, Morris argues, has been trapped in something that is possibly even harder to escape than a maximum security facility, namely a story. Jeffrey MacDonald has been trapped in the story Joe McGinnis told in his 1983 book, Fatal Vision. To paraphrase Morris, everybody thinks they know Jeffrey MacDonald killed his family because everybody saw Jeffrey MacDonald kill his family on television in 1984 when millions of Americans watched NBC's television miniseries presentation of McGinnis's story. The thought of having a story told about you to an audience of millions is so far-fetched for most people that they never think through what the consequences of such a story might be, regardless of whether or not the story is true. Think of it like this. Imagine that we could control the history of the McDonald case. Now imagine that we change nothing about that history with one exception. We switch the toggle from guilty to innocent. That is, we place ourselves in a universe where McDonald did not murder his family, but we hold all other facts constant, including Fatal Visions airing to an audience of millions in 1984. Now, how many people watching Fatal Vision are going to conclude anything different than they would have if they were living in a universe where McDonald did commit the crime? Probably none because their beliefs are not being formed on the basis of direct contact with the case and its mass of convoluted evidence. Their beliefs are being formed on the basis of the story being told, which most people will assume is true. There is also likely to be something like a network effect at work here, which is to say the fact that McGinnis told the story of the McDonald murders first made his telling especially difficult to eradicate, even by subsequent tellings that contradicted or undermined fatal vision tellings like Morris's in A Wilderness of Error. Back to that. What we have been playing with here are epistemological considerations. How people know what they purport to know. Morris wants to ask, how do we know Jeffrey McDonald killed his family? 
what is it about McGinnis's story that requires us, on an evidentiary basis, not a narrative one, to conclude that McDonald is guilty? As listeners of this podcast no doubt appreciate, the answer is not much. The psychological and forensic evidence upon which McGinnis hangs his narrative is rickety at best. By no means does McGinnis back us into a corner such that we simply cannot reasonably imagine that McDonald did not commit the crime. Morris's driving home of this point is the primary achievement of a wilderness of error by my lights. As I indicated in episode 9, however, Morris's own narrative, which we must grant he advances more tentatively than McGinnis does his, also proves less than compelling once we subject that narrative to proper historical scrutiny. But Mark Smerling doesn't really engage in such scrutiny in his 2020 A Wilderness of Error documentary. His approach is more impressionistic and free associative. This makes for lovely filmmaking as Smerling churns up rich and eerily accurate renditions of Helena Stokely, Prince Beasley, Freddie and Mildred Kassab, and other historical figures who reappear across the various narratives of the McDonald murders that have been offered up over the decades. Smerling also gets a hold of hitherto unseen documentary evidence relating to the Article 32 hearing, as well as witnesses whose stories were hitherto untold including Captain Clifford Somers and a woman who had been close with Helena Stokely at the time of the murders. For anyone already interested in the McDonald case, all of this is enthralling. But the series ends on a curiously irresolute note. Smerling turns Morris's famed creation, the Interatron, back upon the filmmaker. He then shows Morris footage of a Helena Stokely interview Morris has surely seen before, wherein Stokely recounts her participation in a crime that bears little resemblance to McDonald's own account of the murders. Morris acknowledges that he finds McDonald's account suspicious, but is still unwilling to conclude that McDonald committed the murders. The episode illustrates what we might call the Stokely problem. The most compelling evidence for McDonald's version of events are the testimonies of Kenneth Micah and the Caspers, Winnie and Edwin. Against all probability, Micah saw a woman matching McDonald's description of an intruder, standing in the pouring rain on a street corner a half mile from the crime scene at around 3.30 a.m. on a Tuesday. The sight, no one denies, was highly unusual. At around the same time, Winnie and Edwin Casper heard a group of people laughing and scuffling in the rain outside their window. The group included at least one woman and more than one man. I would submit that the probability that there were two women running around in the rain in a quiet residential area at that hour is sufficiently low that it is rational to conclude, or at least seriously consider, that there were not two women, but rather one. One woman, seen wearing a wide-brimmed hat over her long hair, and heard, in the company of male companions, only 500 feet from, and heading in the direction of, 544 Castle Drive. These facts must be reckoned with. But instead of reckoning with them, nearly every researcher to date, including Smerling, has focused on Helena Stokely and determining whether she was the woman in the wide-brimmed hat. But this is a non-sequitur, hence the Stokely problem. Helena may not have been the woman on the corner. Helena may have been lying about everything. We still have a woman in a wide-brimmed hat, not to mention one running toward the McDonald's residence in the company of men at around the time of the murders to account for. Helena may be nothing but a distraction, a red herring, but the woman on the corner is still standing there, crying out for an explanation. We'll see you next time on The Looking Glass.